Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine, the pseudonym of Harold Leland Goodwin. This is the eighth entry into the Rick Brandt Science Adventure series. It's one of my favorite Rick Brandt books because it involves all the guys, Rick, Scotty, and Chada, and it finds Rick and Scotty traveling out of New Jersey and back to Asia. Rick and Scotty get a telegram. It's a coded message from Chada, their friend in Bombay. It's a bunch of numbers that look like nonsense until Spindrift's brain trust has looked over it and decodes it and has it make some sense. Once decoded, the message leads Rick and Scotty to Singapore, where they aid Chada and get involved in a hair-raising adventure of puzzles and intrigue. And now, The Caves of Fear. Chapter 1. Changes at Spindrift the sounds of hammer and saw had disturbed Spindrift Island for several days, and Rick Brandt was having a hard time getting used to it. The noise didn't bother him. It was the idea behind the noise, the idea that the close fellowship of the famous island was about to be intruded upon by strangers. He sat in a comfortable chair on the front porch of the big Brandt house and stared morosely at the Atlantic. He was a tall, athletic boy with brown hair and eyes, and a face that was usually pleasant. "'What's it going to be like with a mob of strangers galloping all over the place?' he demanded. Don Scott grinned lazily from the depths of his armchair. He was a husky youth, perhaps an inch taller than Rick, with black hair and dark eyes. "'Since when do five people make a mob?' he inquired. "'Besides, I think adding more scientists to the staff is a good thing. So is your dad.' I know that, Rick returned gloomily. The others do too. I'm a downtrodden minority. No one sympathizes with me. Scotty shook his head sadly. Poor old Rick. Seriously, I don't get it. You should be cheering loudest. I mean, think of what this means, pal. More fields of science to explore, including one I never even heard of before. Maybe more expeditions of different kinds than the ones we've been up to till now. That's what I've been thinking about, Rick returned. Why are you so gloomy? Because, Rick stopped as the phone rang in the house. Scotty got to his feet quickly. I'll get it. Mom and Dad are down watching the builders. Rick smiled as Scotty went into the house. It pleased him to have Scotty call Mr. and Mrs. Brant Mom and Dad. It was a symbol of Scotty's permanence in the family. No one had ever questioned Scotty's membership in the Spindrift tribe since the day when the scrappy ex-Marine had rescued Rick from a gang of thugs bent on destroying the Island Foundation's moon rocket. And it was pleasant to think of Scotty as a permanent brother. The two of them had been through some tight places together, and they were closer friends than brothers usually are. 
Like Rick, Scotty was listed on the membership rolls of the Spindrift Foundation as a junior technician. Harson W. Brandt was listed as president, but it was Rick's pride that he and Scotty had earned places because of their own worth and not because of their relationship with the scientist. However, their abilities were not the same. Because of Rick's interest in science, particularly electronics, he had become expert in intricate wiring, and he was rapidly learning about the design of equipment. Scotty's talent was in the mechanical field. He could repair machinery, and he was a whiz with engines. Thinking about work in the lab reminded Rick that he had an unfinished project of his own on his workbench upstairs. He was half out of his chair, determined to go upstairs and put the rest of the afternoon to good use when Scotty called. Rick, hurry up! He ran into the library and found Scotty holding the phone. Here's a funny one, Rick. The Whiteside Telegraph office has a cable for you. But they won't read it over the phone because it's all numbers. It's from Chada. Chada was a Hindu boy who had been like a member of the family since he had joined a spindrift expedition in Bombay. He was now back home in India. He had left the boys in New Caledonia after a recent adventure in order to visit his family. I'd better talk to them, Rick said. Who's on the wire? Bill Martin. Rick took up the phone. Bill? This is Rick. What's up? I got a cable address to you, Bill answered. I'd rather not try to read it over the phone because it's all numbers. And you or Scotty, just please pick it up. Where's it from? Rick asked. Uh, Singapore, and it's signed by your Indian friend. Singapore? What on earth was Chada doing in Singapore? Rick couldn't guess. Bill, what kind of numbers are they? Groups. Seven figures in each group. If you ask me, it's some sort of code. Rick thought quickly. You know, Barbie's in Whiteside, Bill. She went over to a movie right after lunch, and she should be just about getting out. You can get her next door at the sugar shop, because she always stops in there for a fudge Sunday after the show. If she's already gone, phone the boat landing. You ought to catch her one place or the other. I'll try, Bill promised. If I don't catch her, I'll call you back. Thanks a million, Bill. Rick restored the phone to its cradle and looked at Scotty. Now, what do you make of that? Scotty shrugged. Beats me. I didn't know Chada was planning to leave Bombay. If it comes to that, I didn't know he knew anything about codes. Neither did I, Rick agreed. Remember he said something about a job in his last letter? There was something secret that he couldn't tell us? Maybe that's why he's in Singapore. Could be. Anyway, we won't know for sure until we get that cable and decipher it. If we can decipher it, that is. We'll be able to, Rick said confidently. He wouldn't send us one we couldn't break. Scotty nodded. I hope you're right. Well, let's go back and get lazy again. Not me. Rick started for the stairs. I'm going to stop loafing and get busy. The lenses for the camera arrived a week ago, and I haven't even looked at them. I'll go with you. I got some questions about these new people maybe you can answer. Upstairs in Rick's bedroom, Scotty sat down in the old leather armchair while Rick opened up the doors that concealed his workbench. On the bench was a camera with an odd-looking searchlight and a telescope attached. The searchlight gave off invisible infrared rays instead of ordinary light, and the telescope was equipped with special lenses in order to pick up the infrared. 
and the camera was loaded with special film and could take pictures in total darkness, provided the subject was within range of the infrared light rays. But Rick was still not satisfied with the camera. He was always striving to find the simplest way of doing a thing. This time he was planning to eliminate both the spring-driven dynamo that powered the searchlight and the infrared telescope. A new type of battery in a small metal case already had been mounted under the camera, far enough to one side so it wouldn't interfere with the tripod mount. The battery would give about 10 hours of service and it could be replaced in a moment with a spare carried in the pocket. To take the place of the telescope, Rick had ordered lenses made of the special glass that could see infrared. He intended to put the lenses in ordinary sunglass frames, restore the regular viewfinder to the camera, and turn the telescope over to Scotty. By using the eyeglasses with special lenses, he could see whatever the infrared searchlight was lighting up without the need of looking through the telescope. Using the glasses and searchlight on a camera together, he could see perfectly in the darkness, and he could take movies too if he wanted. He went to work removing the telescope. I've checked, Scotty said. That scope will fit on the mount of my rifle with no changes. Scotty already had a telescopic sight on his rifle, and the telescope from the infrared unit could be put in its place with a simple turn of a screw. The infrared scope and light originally had been designed for a rifle to be used by soldiers at night. Rick had simply adapted the unit to his own needs. We could get in some night skunk hunting, Scotty said. You put the infrared on them and take their picture and I'll side in through the special scope and shoot them dead. Rick slipped the telescope out of its mount and handed it to Scotty. There's one thing I don't need. It's a dead skunk. Can't we hunt prairie moose instead? What's a prairie moose? Scotty demanded. A field mouse with horns. Scotty groaned. All right, scientist. Let's get serious and see if you can answer this one. We have an archaeologist, a naturalist, and a cyberneticist coming. I think I know what the first two are, but what in the name of a blue baboon is a cyberneticist? Rick put the camera viewfinder into place and began to adjust it. Easy. It's a specialist in cybernetics, he said. Scotty waved his arms. Well, now I know, he exclaimed triumphantly. Any idiot knows what cybernetics is, or what they are. Ten cents apiece at any hardware counter. No family should be without a handy-dandy cybernetic. Rick chuckled. All right. Cybernetics is a combined study of machines and the human nervous system. It's trying to figure out how machines and humans are related. I don't know much about it myself, but I do know this. The big electronic calculators that do problems in a few hours that would take humans hundreds of years to finish, that was the result of cybernetics. The big brains? Scotty looked awed. I've read about them. And to think we're going to have that kind of expert here? With his wife and two kids, Rick added. wonder how Huggins will like a crowd of kids trampling through his garden. Scotty laughed outright. Here we go again. Listen, Rick, start making sense. How can twins less than a year old trample anybody's garden? Rick didn't try to answer. He finished the adjustment on the camera and put it back on the shelf, then started to work replacing the lenses and an old pair of sunglasses with special ones he had ordered. 
After a moment, he asked, Scotty, how would you like it if an expedition left Spindrift and we weren't with it? Scotty stared. My sainted aunt, is that what's been bothering you? Rick admitted it. He knew where he stood with the old gang, Hartz and Brandt, Hobart Zircon, Julius Weiss, and John Gordon. He was far from sure of how the new staff members would look on him and Scotty. He had learned that some scientists had little patience with people who were unfamiliar with their specialist fields. And he and Scotty were pretty ignorant about the new sciences that would be represented. That was his only reason for objecting when his father had decided to enlarge the staff. I can see it now, he said. The Foundation will be planning an expedition, maybe to be headed by this new naturalist, and will be on the outside looking in. Why? Because Dr. Howard Shannon prefers not to be bothered by a couple of guys who wouldn't know one bug from another. You're crossing bridges before you come to them, Scotty pointed out. For all you know, all three of these new scientists might be perfectly swell gents, like Zircon, Weiss, and Gordon. Why borrow trouble in advance? Yeah, I guess you're right. Rick had to agree. But I still can't help thinking about it. Think all you like, Scotty said generously. Me, I'm going to put my little grain brace cells to work on Chada's cable. Aren't you all fired up with curiosity? Rick started to say he was, but no reply was necessary, because just then he heard the sound of the motorboat engine for which his ears had been attuned. He put down the sunglasses and ran to the door. Scotty had heard the engine, too, and was halfway down the hall. Had to be Barbie, Rick was sure. The other motorboat, the Allen had two, was tied up at the pier, and they weren't expecting any visitors. The builders had their own boat, a powered barge, anchored off Pirate's Field. The boys ran out onto the front porch and around the house, then down the long flight of stairs that led to the cove where the motorboat landing was located. It was Barbie, sure enough, and she had the cable. She waved it wildly, then gunned the boat around neatly so that it slid into the dock. Scotty grabbed the bow line and made it fast, while Rick jumped for the stern line and slipped it around a cleat on the landing. Barbie cut the engine and jumped to the dock, a slim, pretty girl, her face flushed with excitement. It's from Chada, she said breathlessly, and it's in code. We know, Scotty said. Here, let's take a look at it. Barbie handed it to him. He scanned it wordlessly, then handed it to Rick. Son, we'll be doing right well if we can make any sense out of that. He wouldn't have sent us anything in a code we couldn't read, Rick objected. Let's see, it can't be too hard. But in the next moment, he changed his mind. His lips pursed in a low whistle. There was the cable. Rick Brandt, Spindrift Island, New Jersey, USA. Before him were seven columns of numbers and seven rows of numbers, set into groups of seven numbers. It was signed El Chada. It looked complicated. Chapter 2. The Cipher Message Barbie, Rick, and Scotty were in the library when Hartz and Brandt walked in. They were reduced to the point of staring at each other helplessly because of the magnitude of the task that confronted them. 
The famous scientist, who looked like an older version of his son, greeted them with a smile. What is this, a meeting of the Silent Three? I can't ever remember finding you all together when one of you wasn't talking. Rick handed him the cable. What do you make of this, Dad? Hartson Brandt scanned it quickly. Kamchata and Singapore and in Cypher. Am I supposed to gather you don't have the key to the Cypher? That's right, Scotty said. He held up a heavy volume called Cryptography for the Student. It was the only book on the subject in the scientist's library. We've been going through this trying to find some kind of clue. Honest, it's impossible. There are so many codes and ciphers, Barbie added. Dozens, and it says some of them can only be broken by days of work by experts. There's no expert in this house either, Rick concluded. I didn't think when Bill called us up about this, the Chada would use a code we couldn't figure out. But I didn't expect a page like this. Hartz and Brandt read through the cable again. How do you know you can't figure it out? Perhaps a little reasoning will clear the air. Chada must have put a key in the message somewhere. How about this L in front of his name? That's right, Barbie said excitedly. That must be something, because his name is Chada Sudara Raman. There isn't an L in there anywhere. The scientist handed the cable back to Rick. I'm about as curious as I can get. But I refuse to think any more about this until you hand me the clear version. I agree that Chatter wouldn't send a code you couldn't solve, so my advice is to put the code book down. You're not going to need it, I'm sure. This isn't any code you'll find in there. He started out of the room, then paused at the door, eyes twinkling. Will you have dinner at the table with us, or shall I ask your mother to break out some emergency rations so you can stand the job here? We'll eat with the family, Scotty replied. We can keep thinking about this while we eat, can't we? Rick watched his father wink at Barbie and then walk toward the kitchen. Dad's right. He must be. So let's put the book back and start figuring this out. The answer is probably easy as pie once we find the key. Well, how about starting with that odd letter? That has to mean something, Scotty said. Well, L is the twelfth letter in the alphabet, Barbie offered. Does that mean anything? Rick shook his head. Not to me, but let's start from there anyway. Maybe the twelfth group of numbers has a clue? He counted rapidly across the numbers. That group is 4399693. Now what? Scotty suggested. Substitute letters for the numbers. That would make it D-C-I-I-F-I-C. That doesn't mean anything. Maybe you counted the wrong way, Barbie said thoughtfully. Count down the columns instead of across. Rick did so. Okay, that's eight three three seven three seven three. Substitute and it comes out. Let's see. HCCGCGC. Nothing there either. Scotty had a pad of paper and a pencil and was making idle doodles. I'm trying to remember this. When did Chada learn anything about codes? Rick thought for a moment. He never did, that I know of, he said finally. Barbie stood up. Well, I'm going to shower and change before dinner, she announced. But I'll keep thinking about this. I have an idea that talking about it won't help much. 
If Dad and Rick are right about Chada using a code we're sure to know, it must be staring us in the face, and we're just too blind to see it. That's a good idea, Rick agreed. Let's break this up and each think about it. If we each search our memories, maybe we'll come up with a clue. Barbie went upstairs, and Scotty retired to his favorite seat on the porch. But Rick felt that he could think better on his feet. A glance at his watch told him he had over an hour and a half until dinner. He waved to Scotty and walked across the grass toward the Greystone Laboratory buildings. Professor Weiss was in his office working on some mathematical theory he was developing. It was way over Rick's head. For a moment, he thought about posing the problem to the little professor, then thought better of it and passed by the lab on the south side. He skirted the woods and crossed Pirate's Field, so-called because local legends had the famed woman pirate, Anne Bonnie, had once landed there with her gang of cutthroats. He paused for a moment and studied the fused sand left by the terrific heat when the first moon rocket was launched, but the barren patch gave him no inspiration. Staying on the shore path, he walked slowly toward the back of the island and presently came out at the tidal flats. The tide was out, leaving the rocks exposed. He sat down at the edge of the low bluff above the flats and stared into the patches of water. It was a hard job trying to recall every detail of his friendship with the little Hindu boy, but he tried. It had started in Bombay when Rick and Scotty were on their way to Tibet with Weiss and Zircon to set up their radar relay station for message transmission to the moon. When their equipment was stolen, it was Chada who took the lead in finding it again. They had been amused by the beggar boy who had educated himself with an old copy of the World Almanac. His ability to quote anything from the Almanac was sometimes pretty funny and really astonishing. Then at the Lost City he had more than proved his courage and loyalty, and the Spin Drifters had sponsored his visit to America as a reward. For a while Chada had attended school in America, then he had gone to the Pacific with the Spindrift expedition to Quangara Island. After salvaging the remains of an ancient temple from 100 fathoms of water, not to mention the treasure that was found, the Spindrifters had returned home. But Chada had elected to remain in Hawaii with Professor Warren of the Pacific Ethnographic Society. Later he had gone with the Warren Scientific Expedition to the South Seas and Barbie, Rick, and Scotty had joined the party in New Caledonia. After completing part of the expedition's work, the trawler Tarpon had returned to New Caledonia, where the young people had solved another mystery. Then the three spindrifters returned home. Jada had taken air passage to Bombay to see his family. I can't remember everything we ever talked about, Rick muttered to himself. Talked about everything, anything, well, anything except codes. I can't remember that we ever talked about codes. He got up, noticing that the crew of builders were in their barge, returning to the mainland for the night. They were trucking materials to a point on the shore near Spindrift, using an old wood road, then taking the stuff the rest of the way by barge. It was getting on to dinner time. He took the woods path back, passing by the new cottages. They were nearing completion. The outsides were already finished. Beyond the cottages was the farm run by the Huggins family. Mr. Huggins was just herding the island's milk cows into the barn for milking. Rick kicked at a nearby tree. Either I'm dumb or it isn't as simple as we think it ought to be, he said aloud. 
Then he went on into the house. Scotty and Barbie had done no better. They gathered at the family table with long faces, and Barbie placed the disturbing cable in the middle of the table as a centerpiece. If we look at it long enough, maybe we'll get inspiration, she said. Professor Julius Weiss, the only one of the three staff scientists who was at home at the moment, picked up the cable and examined it. A cipher, huh? He adjusted his glasses. It certainly looks complicated. Any ideas? Rick asked hopefully. The little mathematician shook his head. No, Rick, I could give you the cube root of the square of the sum of the numbers or anything like that, but I'm afraid I wouldn't even know how to start breaking the code. He added, John probably could. He had some experience with codes while in the Navy, I believe. John was Professor John Gordon. He was on an extended trip to New Mexico, serving as a consultant to the Navy's guided missile projects. The third scientist, Professor Hobart Zircon, was giving a five-week series of lectures in nuclear physics at Yale. I'm afraid Professor Gordon is too far away to help us with this, Rick said. Mrs. Brandt came in, bringing a heavily laden dish of fresh corn on the comp. Behind her trotted a shaggy little dog. Rick stamped his fingers. Here, Diz. Dismal ran over and barked at his young master, then rolled over onto his back and played dead. That was his only trick. Rick grinned. Did you bring him along as an advisor, Mom? I'll bet he'd be as good at solving this as any of us. Mrs. Brandt smiled. From what your father told me, I think he might be at that. But why all the long faces? I think it's exciting getting a coded message from Chada. Why, this is the first time we've had a code problem on the island since the moon rocket. Mrs. Brandt couldn't have caused a more sudden reaction had she tossed a lit firecracker into the middle of the roast. Barbie knocked over her water glass. Scotty gasped. Great grasshoppers! A book code! Rick strangled on a sip of milk, and when he could get his breath together, he ran around the table to his mother and kissed her soundly and lifted her hand high in a token of victory. A new champ, he proclaimed. Mom, you're a genius. But Rick, I didn't say anything except... You said just enough, dear, Hartson Brandt replied. We all had the answer right in that second because you gave us the clue. Remember the code our former friend used when he was sending messages off the island? The former friend Hartson Brandt referred to was a member of the staff who had turned renegade and helped Manfred Vessels and Gang in their efforts to build a moon rocket, using the spindrift design in order to win the Stone Ridge grant of $2 million. The trader scientist had used code messages to keep the gang informed of new developments on spindrift while he had used the cloak of false friendship to slow up the building of the Spindrift rocket. He used a double code, Rick explained. Part of it was a regular cipher, but the first step was a book code. I do remember, Mrs. Brandt exclaimed. He used a copy of that book Hartson's friend wrote. What was it? Psychiatry Simplified? The code was numbers that gave the page of the book and the position of the word on the page. And unless you found the book, like Rick and Scotty did, you couldn't break the code. Barbie jumped up in her excitement. And I know what book that Chada was using. The rest of the group spoke as one. 
the World Almanac. Scotty ran for the library, Rick on his heels. We told him about that code, Scotty said. And now I remember about that too. It was right after we got back from India when we were showing him around the lab. I remember too, Rick agreed. We were telling him about how the gang used my plane with me flying it to smuggle their coded messages, and he asked us about it because he had never heard of codes before. They reached the shelf that held the almanac and stopped short. Because of the year-to-year news summaries of the famous annual, Hartz and Brandt had kept each edition as a reference source. There were over a dozen of them on the shelf. They're all different, Rick said. The pages change every year. Which one did he use? Scotty's forehead furrowed. Well, which one did he memorize? It was an old one, but I can't remember the date. Got it, Rick said. Remember the letter L? The twelfth letter of the alphabet. It had to have been the 1912 edition. Scotty surveyed the shelf. Which we don't have. Rick groaned. No. Hartson Brandt called from the dining room. Haven't you solved that cipher yet? The boys walked dejectedly back to join the others. Rick explained that the right volume was missing. The Spindrift files just didn't go back that far. Sit down, eat your dinner, Hartson Brandt said. He sliced roast for them, his eyes thoughtful. Something's wrong with your reasoning, he said as he filled Rick's plate. Would Chata have a 1912 edition with him in Singapore? I doubt it. More likely he would have used a more recent one. But the letter L has to mean something, Barbie protested. What could it mean but 12? Rick asked. And the answer struck him before the words were out. Oh my gosh, of course. 50. L is the Roman numeral 50. Barbie clapped her hands, and Scotty reached over and pounded Rick on the back. That's it, Hartson Brandt said approvingly. I'll make a wager on it. Try to use the 1950 edition. Rick pushed back his chair, but the scientist's voice stopped him. Let's rest on our laurels for a second, Rick. Finish dinner first, then we'll all retire to the library and work it out. Because they were burning with impatience, the three younger members of the Spindrift family did not enjoy the meal, but they made a pretense of eating. Then an eternity later, Hartz and Brandt took the last sip of his coffee and grinned at Rick. Shall we get at it? Shall we? Barbie led the way, holding the cable high. The first part was easy. Since most pages of the almanac had three numbers, they assumed that the first three numbers in each code group referred to the page. Similarly, they assumed that the second two numbers referred to the line. That left two numbers for the position of the word on the line. With nervous fingers, Rick turned to page 521 of the 1950 edition and counted down 30 lines. He hesitated over the subtitles, then decided to count them too. At the proper line, he looked up at Scotty and Barbie, who were watching over his shoulders. But there are two columns. Don't worry about the columns, Scotty advised. I don't think Chada would pay any attention to the columns because it would mean extra numbers in each group. Count right across. Don't pay any attention to the dividing line. Rick did so. 
it, it doesn't come out right. The number is 39, but there are only 17 words on the whole line. Oh, maybe we're wrong all the way around, Barbie sighed. I don't think so, Hartson Brand said. He was sitting in a comfortable chair smoking an after-dinner pipe. The logic of the thing appeals to me. Do you suppose Chada would know about nulls? What's a null? Scotty asked. In cryptography, it's a number or letter thrown in for the sake of appearance or to confuse. Chada might know, Rick said. That brown head of his is crammed full of more chunks of odd information than you could imagine. But if there's a null in this, which figure is it? Try it both ways, Barbie urged. Here, I'll do it. She counted across the line. The third word is 17. The ninth word is come. Could be either, Scotty mused. But come sounds more likely. Let's try the next group. That was 6231581. Rick turned to page 623 and counted down 15 lines, including the title. However, he didn't count the page heading. The heading was on the same line as the page number. Both were above a line drawn across the top of the page, and it seemed sensible to start below the line. There aren't 81 words on the line, he said, so that means another null, maybe. The first word is both, and the eighth word is may. Barbie wrote them down. It all makes sense. It could be 17 may or come both. Keep going, Scotty urged. Try another one. The third group gave them a choice of Cheyenne, which seemed unlikely, or bad. He couldn't be talking about Cheyenne, Rick said. The word must be bad. That means the first figure of the pair is the null, because it's the second figure that stands for bad. Sounds reasonable, Scotty agreed. Keep plugging. So far, the probable words were come, both, bad. Page 276 in the fourth group turned out to be a table of atomic weights. Line 86 was the element tantalum. If the first figure of the last pair was assumed to be the null, the word was the symbol for tantalum, T-A. Rick stared at it. Something's wrong. This doesn't make any sense. Barbie asked impatiently, How do we know? Rick yielded and moved to the next group. It gave the word rubles. That's Russian money, he said. The trio looked at it in bewilderment, then Scotty suddenly let out a yell of laughter. I've got it. Can't you see? Ta and rubles go together. To rubles. Troubles. Then they were howling with laughter. Then they were all howling with joy. Leave it to Chada to dream something like that, Rick thought. So far the message made sense. Come both bad troubles. He turned the pages and counted feverishly. The sixth group gave am and the seventh in. The eighth group gave the message an ominous tone. Come both bad troubles, m in danger. The scientists and Mrs. Brandt were looking over Rick's shoulder now, too. The ninth group stopped them for a moment because the pair of figures standing for the word was 14. If the figure 1 was the null, then the word was the. 
but there were more than 14 words in the line, and the 14th was my. Rick looked at the faces around him. I think it's my, because he must have had a reason for using the nulls. If I were making up the code, I'd use them because sometimes there are enough words in a line so that you need two figures, and sometimes not. But you always have to put down two figures so the groups will be even. Good thinking, Rick's father complimented him. Go ahead on that basis, but hurry up, the suspense is awful. There was a chorus of agreements. The next word was boss. He was working then, Scotty guessed. That must be it, if he has boss. Rick started the next group. It produced Carl, page 439. The 96th line gave Bradley. Then the boss's name was Carl Bradley? Hartson and Brandt gave a muffled exclamation. Scotty turned quickly. Do you know that name, Dad? Yes. But let's get the rest of the message. Quickly, Rick. The words appeared in rapid succession, with a pause now and then to solve a new difficulty. Once the lines across the columns were not even, and a ruler had to be laid across to find the word, again a null appeared as the first number in the page group. Chada had used it because the page was 51, and he needed a third figure to round out the group. That was easy to spot because the group read 951 and the book only had 912 pages. In the last series of groups, Rick came across another word like terubles. This time, be and where combined to make beware. And then the very last word stopped them for a moment. It was umbra. What's that? Scotty asked. The shadow cast by the moon during an eclipse of the sun, Julius Weiss replied. Or part of it, rather. There are two shadows, the umbra and the penumbra. Barbie ran for a dictionary and leafed through the pages quickly. I haven't. Listen. It's from the Latin for shadow. It means shade or shadow. Shadow it is, Rick said and wrote it down. Then slowly he read the full message to the serious group around him. Come both. Bad troubles. Am in danger. My boss, Carl Bradley, disappeared. Government will ask scientific father do special work. Must take. Get jobs. Meet me. Hong Kong. Golden Mouse. Watch Chinese with glass eye. He dangerous. And beware long shadow.